0: This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised.
1: This is Episode 6, The Nora Jackson Story. I'm Megan. Hi Amy. How are you? I'm excited. I got a good one for you today. Don't we say that every time? I know. <laughs> it's true though. Do you know uh, the Nora Jackson story?
0: So I I have heard of it and I know a little bit but as usual I don't know the deep dive, the details. I don't even think I know the outcome.
1: So well, that's A beautiful thing, because I'm about to school you. All right, let's do it. All right, well, Nora Jackson, born in 1987, to Jennifer Jackson, who we will come to find out is the victim in this case, and Nazmi Hassani. Her mother was a successful bond trader, and her father, a former Lebanese army captain, owned several small businesses in the Memphis area. Unfortunately, the marriage did not last long. Actually, they ended up getting married just four months before Nora was born, and they separated just six months after. So they got divorced when Nora was a baby. Um, the father did stay in the life until Nora was about eight years old. However, at age eight, Jennifer filed for full custody. Nazmi found himself in a bit of legal battle. He got charged with child molestation. A lot of, um, what was it, endangerment of a young person giving alcohol to a minor and then sexual assault case. This Um, didn't involve Nora, did it? It did not, but as any mother would, the mom said, not around my child. And there was also a history of abuse with Nazmi and Jennifer. So he would not reenter Nora's life until she was 16. But it's a very interesting way that they became reacquainted. So Nora just walked into a convenience store one day and she saw a man who looked really familiar to her working in the store. She asked the clerk, you know, who's that guy over there? What's his name? Sure enough, it was Nazmi. And then she saw a baby photo of herself posted um, on the cash register. You know, how sometimes there's pictures on a register. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? So after this time, her father was back in her life. And, you know, it was kind of nice because they were both very happy that they were able to, you know, rekindle in some way. Unfortunately, very soon after they started communicating again, he would be murdered. Wow. Yeah. And this was just 16 months prior to Jennifer's murder.
0: How was he murdered?
1: Well, the case is still unsolved. There were a few developments in 2017, which we'll talk about, but let's talk about the crime first. January 2004, he was working in that convenience store that I referenced before, and we know this because there is surveillance video available. A man walks in, asks to talk to Nazmi in the back. Nazmi willingly goes with him into the back to talk to him. He gets shot in the head. So... At first, you think, well, this must be a robbery. So you do see the man, before he leaves, he does take some stuff out of the cash register. But what we should focus on more is what he does before that, because he actually ransacks Nazmi's office and takes a VHS tape. So he's clearly looking for something. And then he finds this VHS tape, which the police think the man believes to be a surveillance camera. And this was just a backup. But there's some speculation that it might be some other kind of tape.
0: So is this possibly like the father or a relative of a victim of his, like avenging?
1: Well, you would think that's possible, but he was doing a lot of other shady business. Oh. So he owned a limousine company in addition to his convenience store. And he ran a lim- this limo company, which reportedly ushered people from a nearby strip club. And there was also a nearby police station. And there was some speculation that there were some people that were high up in the community that may have been using his limos to have sex, and Nazmi was secretly taping these interactions. In addition, there were some reports that there was a police officer, a local um, officer who was using Nazmi's office in the convenience store to have sexual relations with a dancer, and that Nazmi was potentially videotaping these. So Take your pick. Take your pick, but in 2017, there was actually a report that Suggested that he might have had some issues with the Mexican drug cartel because he might have been, he might have unknowingly videotaped some drug dealings in the limos that could be traced back. Either way, we'll revisit this a little bit later when we talk about alternate theories, but let's go back now to Nora's childhood. Okay. So, again, remember I said, you know, Jennifer and Nazmi divorced when Jennifer was very young. Her mother had several failed relationships throughout Nora's early years. She got engaged, uh, then she broke off that engagement and got married again. This man was reportedly abusive, and then she got divorced again a few years later. They moved around a bit for these different men. They moved to Arkansas, then they moved to Georgia before they ended up um, settling in Memphis. So Nora did have a little bit of a tumultuous upbringing. Um, By all accounts, though, Nora and her mother did have uh, a very close relationship. And at times, some would say their relationship actually functioned a little more like a friendship than a mother-daughter relationship. Sometimes you'll see parents feel guilty if they're a single mother and they try to become friends with their child. So there there were some reports that in her teenage years, in Nora's teenage years, they really started to butt heads a bit, as obviously most mother and daughters do in their teenage years. But it really became difficult for Jennifer to get a grasp on Nora because Nora was used to this. This is my mom. We're... We're friends. You know, we hang out. And now all of a sudden her mom was trying to impose rules, impose rules. And this was really due to the fact that Nora was not excelling in school. She became more interested in just hanging out with friends, going out. She had several boyfriends. She was a bit of a party girl, which would become a bit of a focus at trial.
0: That's one of the things I I remember about the case was them calling her the party girl. Once
1: again, the media, media had a blast with this you know character assassination at its finest which we see a lot in these cases right
0: especially with women
1: yep so when Nora was 16 years old she experienced a rough patch in her life her maternal grandmother who she was extremely close with had died and then as discussed her father was murdered and then just 10 months later her childhood best friend was in a fatal car accident So she had a lot going on other than, you know, the fact that she was a teenager dealing with normal teenage stuff. Apparently there were issues with her friends didn't want to be friends with her. She switched groups of friends, all typical teenage stuff. But then she had all these people close to her die. She sounds incredibly unlucky. Yeah. So her acting out is somewhat understandable. She was responding to all, you know, these things going on around her. So she refused to go back to school after she completed the 11th grade and actually never progressed on to senior year. Her mother insisted that she be homeschooled because education was very important to Jennifer. So that May, just a month or so before Jennifer was murdered, it was reported that Jennifer was really tightening the reins on Nora, trying, you know, getting on her case a lot more, really wanting her to excel in school, and Nora was becoming a bit more wild. I think I'm already seeing motive. Yep, exactly. Well, at least... Potential motive. Okay. All right. So let's move on to, you know, the night slash morning in question. So the evening of Saturday, June 4th, Nora went to an Italian festival with friends and then to a house party. And a lot of people were with Nora, say this is true. This is where we were. She was here. At the same time, Jennifer was attending a wedding and then went to a local bar with um, somebody knew that she was dating. Some would say it was, you know, a good friend, a boyfriend. It was a new interest in her life. Nora spoke to her mother shortly after midnight and cell phone records corroborate this. Okay. So Jennifer returned home and this is corroborated by receipts and cell phone records. Jennifer returned home at about 11.45 that evening and it seems as though she noticed Nora's not home yet. Nora should be home. She had schoolwork. She's grounded. She wasn't supposed to be out. So Nora's mother calls her and reportedly tells her, you know, get your ass home, pretty much. And Nora was angry and yelling back at her and reportedly told people at the party, my mother's a bitch and she needs to go to hell. Oof. So that, of course, is going to come up. These are normal things,
0: though, of course, when you get mad, like teenagers get yeah, mad. Exactly. And they say this about their mom, but, you know, yep.
1: the context is everything. So this is at, you know, a little after midnight. What happens between then and 5 a.m. is unclear. So according to Nora, I'll tell you what's going on, and then that'll lead up to her discovering her mother's body. But according to Nora, after the house party, she headed to another friend's house, who actually was an on-again, off-again boyfriend. She was hooking up with a few different guys that'll come into play. Apparently, she stopped for gas. Then she went to Taco Bell. She bought cigarettes at some point. She drove around um, for a while, she claimed she drove around smoking pot and she came home shortly before 5 a.m. to find her mother stabbed to death.
0: Any of this stuff, uh, I don't know if I'm jumping Mm -hmm. the gun, but corroborated or not, the Taco Bell, the cigarettes, like surveillance, receipts, anything.
1: So what's really curious is that there was no activity on her otherwise active cell phone between the hours of one and three. Okay. so there's receipts around one, uh, a little before one o'clock a.m. Uh, She bought cigarettes. There's a receipt for that. Some people, some of her friends spoke to her. She had gone to Taco Bell, realized she left a wallet. But then if she left her wallet, how'd she buy cigarettes? There was a lot of kind of shady, shady things that did not add up. Okay. The shadiest thing is the police asked her, you know, where she was. And she gave her that laundry list I just told you. Except she left out one little detail. She left out the fact that she stopped at a Walgreens. Why a is wall- this? Yeah, why is this important? Why, why do we care that she's at Walgreens a little bit before 4 a.m.? Well, the reason why we care is she is seen on surveillance camera entering the store with a towel wrapped around her hand, goes up to the clerk with an actively bleeding wound on her hand. The clerk gives her a big wad of paper towel to stop the bleeding. And on this trip to Walgreens, she purchases Band-Aids and skincare products, such as hydrogen peroxide, new skin, which is like that Band-Aid stuff. Yes. So why not mention this to the police? Okay. I have so many questions already. Yeah. Can I ask one or two? Please,
0: go. Okay. First of all, was her mother stabbed to death?
1: Over 50 times. Right. You
0: said that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sorry. So I'm already thinking, you know, when you stab someone, the the slippage onto the knife with the hand. Okay. Well, let me ask you.
1: If the knife slips when you're stabbing someone, mm-hmm. where do you expect the cut to be?
0: In the palm of your hands.
1: Interesting. I would think so, too. The cut was on the back of her hand between her thumb and forefinger, not in the webbing, a random gash on the back of her hand.
0: In a frenzy, she could have also like knifed herself in I, her yes. mother, you know, through the knife. I'm, I'm just putting these. Of
1: course. So of what? Course. what does she say? What's her explanation
0: for why she's bleeding? I would okay, love to know. Okay,
1: so before that, her explanation for why not mention this to the police, she said she didn't think it was important. Yet going to Taco Bell was—I mean, Taco Bell is very important. <laughs> Taco Bell is important. Well, the way but, we
0: value food is, yeah. but—and mm. the
1: only reason why the—the the only reason why this even came to light is because the police searched Nora's car and found the bag of items from Walgreens. And then they went to Walgreens and they looked up the items and they found out when it was purchased. They pulled their surveillance and they were like, whoa, she didn't tell us about this. So Nora, when confronted about the cut, Nora claimed that she cut her hand on a beer bottle the previous Friday night. What? So the night in question is Saturday night when she was at the Italian festival. She claims that she had cut her hand the Friday night.
0: Did anyone notice these cuts and why is she bleeding all over the place 24 hours later?
1: Well, the problem with this is According to witness testimony, she told four to five different versions of why her hand was cut. She told (sighs) some people she cut it at the Italian festival. She told another person she burned it while making macaroni and cheese. Another person that she was chasing her kitten. She bought it. She got a kitten that day. She brought a kitten home, which is another reason why maybe her and her mom were fighting because I don't believe she asked her mom, but that's neither here nor there. But she had told two people that she cut it while chasing her kitten. She no so there's this looks bad. This does not look good for her at all. So let's continue to talk about her hands a little, because another thing on her hands that would become an integral part of the case is she had a fresh manicure. Now why is this important? Because she had a fresh French manicure has white tips, and she had just got her nails done, and her nails were in pristine condition, and we know this because they were photographing that cut, and her nails were in perfect shape and. So the defense would say, all right, you're going to tell me she stamped her mom over 50 times and she did not get as much as not a chip on these nails. That's a good point, though. Well, I mean, I would say, couldn't she have been wearing gloves? Possibly. I've heard that used before
0: um, with, the, with nail polish and mm-hmm. manicures. I've heard that actually brought up in defense cases. Yeah. So I don't think it's a bad point. It still doesn't. Mm-hmm. Trust me. I think it still I looks think, bad. But
1: I think that that was one of the defense's strongest arguments was that manicure
0: not sure if that's the strongest argument how great their case was but okay
1: the other explanation for the cut on the hand from the defense because they also i mean i'm sorry from the prosecution because they also said like all right if you're going to stamp someone you would expect a cut on the palm of her hand why is this on the back of her hand well when they get to the crime scene i'm going a little bit out of order here for a purpose they notice that there's a break in a glass like someone had punched through a glass to open, to break in a door. So they claim, well, Nora did that. She was staging the scene. When you break glass with your hand as you're pulling it out, that's exactly what that cut would be consistent with. Okay. So let's talk about the 911 call. She comes home, finds her mother. Obviously, she is, according to Nora, she's in shock. She calls 911. This 911 call is available and you can listen to it. And she is hysterical, screaming hyperventilating, really, um, you know, she's quite the actress if she did not do this. When she finds her mother, she runs to the neighbor's house to get help. One of the neighbors goes back to the house with her with his gun, and he'll testify at trial saying, it was very strange to me that Nora believed there was an intruder in her house who killed her mother, yet she ran in ahead of me when I'm the one who had the gun. So that was a huge point at trial. And Nora says, there's no handbook for this sort of thing.
0: I'm with Nora on this yep. one. People are always judging you. Like the 911 call, she's too hysterical. She's not hysterical enough. I ran of agree ran in with first. That. I'm going to go with her. You act irrational in irrational situations. I don't I, think I that's... I
1: totally agree. There was something else about the 911 call that the prosecution would focus on. The 911 operator says to Nora, has your mom been shot? And Nora says, no. She doesn't say, I don't know. She says straight out, no. Now the prosecution will say... You have this woman who's been stabbed over 50 times. She is blood soaked. How are you so sure that she was not shot? And the prosecution will say, well, because you're the one who did this and you did not shoot her. So that was something that worked against Nora as well.
0: I think that's a fair enough point. Uh, I haven't seen, obviously, I haven't seen, you know, any photos or anything. But if you are covered so much in blood, how would she know? So I think I can at least understand that argument.
1: Yeah, Two other pieces of evidence at the crime scene that would become, I guess you could say, of utmost importance at the trial is, as I mentioned, that glass. So they had a garage door and on the garage, after you have the garage door, there was a side entrance to the garage door. That door was locked and the garage door was apparently locked when the police got there. However, someone had broke in through the door that goes into the house. It's almost as if someone was trying to stage it and they forgot like, oh, there's another door. This door had, I think they call it a butterfly lock. It's a kind of lock that you could only see from the inside. So there was a regular lock that if you were going to break in, you would break the glass by the doorknob. Okay. This glass was broken higher up in like a middle glass pane. So the person who broke the glass, it's almost as if they knew that there was this other hidden lock because there's no reason why an intruder would break the glass at that point.
0: Okay, I understand. So the theory here being that Nora knows her house, knows the locks and that's why exactly. she would do this. Exactly. But it could also, I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, it, it could be someone else who knows the house and Well,
1: that's that's exactly right. I don't think the prosecution nor the defense would say this was sh- stranger because I mean, we can we'll talk about this towards the end. There's a million reasons why the person who killed Jennifer knew her and knew her quite well. Okay. To me, one, another one of the most damning things against Nora was somebody made a call from inside the house close to 1 a.m. to her friend Clark and hung up. 10 minutes later, Nora called Clark from her cell phone. It's almost as if Nora was calling Clark and then realized, oh shit, I'm not supposed to be home. And they can't find any reason to believe that Jennifer even knew this friend. And Jennifer had no history of ever calling any of Nora's friends.
0: And this was at close to 1 a.m.? Uh-huh. That doesn't look good either.
1: That looks very bad for me. Before we continue on with some of this evidence, I do just want to take a minute to discuss the prosecutor who tried this case. Okay. Amy Weirich. So. She reminds me a bit of Patty Precioso, who we talked about a bit in Melanie McGuire's case. She was a win at all. She had a win at all costs mindset. She worked in an office. It was Shelby County, Tennessee, and they had a history of withholding evidence. And a few of the lawyers or the prosecutors would actually come under um, ethics violations,
0: Brady violations, and others. There were,
1: yeah, Brady violations was one of the main things, but there was. They had a laundry list of issues in that office. Ooh, this is getting interesting. Yeah, well, her victory in this case, sorry, spoiler alert, she does have a victory in this case. It actually helped start her political career because not long after, she was appointed district attorney of the whole county. And she would be the first woman to actually hold that post. And she ran on a law and order message.
0: I mean, that's really not surprising, especially with these big celebrated cases. Um, It's not surprising that she's going to go on and, you know, kind of catapult to the next level or or another Mm -hmm. career. Exactly. Just like Patty Prescius goes Exactly.
1: Exactly. Nora was arrested on September 29th, 2005, which is almost four months after the murder, and she was charged with second degree murder. She pled not guilty. She was held without bail, and then they changed it to half a million. Uh, in bond, but she couldn't afford that. So she actually spent 3.5 years in jail before the trial actually began.
0: Which is not totally unusual. We talk about that. I write about this all the time. People spend a long time in our supposed speedy system just Mm -hmm. sitting in jail.
1: So really, the evidence against Nora was entirely circumstantial. In fact, there were two unknown full female DNA profiles that were found at the scene and a third partial profile. In addition, there was hair in Jennifer's hand that did not match Nora's. So you would think that these few bits of information would have halted the case, but no, Wynack pushed straight forward, tunnel vision, and this was it. It was on.
0: Hair in her hand seems like a very big deal to me. That's a struggle.
1: You would think so, but neither side tested the hair to this day.
0: Well, the defense is clearly scared it's going to be Nora's. Well, it definitely is not
1: Nora. It did not match Nora's color. But the defense had another reason why they didn't want to test this hair.
0: Okay, I know why the prosecution wouldn't, but the defense, why?
1: Because they said if it was, they suspected it was Jennifer's hair. And if it was Jennifer's hair, that does nothing for them. Nothing at all. So the prosecution, of course... You know, there's, well, why do you think, why doesn't the prosecution want to test it?
0: Well, if it's not Nora's yeah, and it's exactly. not Jennifer's, then it's clearly, you know, so the unknown so suspect. So would we
1: say that's not of evidentiary value? It just shows, right? They can pick and choose what's of evidentiary value, which I think is pretty shitty. The prosecution, of course, is going to claim that's not why we didn't test it. We didn't test it because it was a poorly managed crime scene, which there there were a lot of people who would agree that it was poorly managed. There was an unknown chain of custody on that hair. And that becomes a big problem.
0: Okay, that is a problem, and I would agree.
1: So that, that kind of taints the whole. Exactly. So besides that, there were apparently over twenty people in that crime scene, and they even some people even say that the unknown DNA profi- profiles that were found at the scene could have actually just been from one of these twenty or more people that were stomping through that scene. They also had this new kitten that was apparently trampling all over the scene, and they were claiming, well, maybe the kitten brought in some unknown female DNA.
0: Okay, I'm going to not go with the kitten did it, just so you know, (laughs) but um, I understand. I'm also going to say, Nora is a young girl. Doesn't she also have friends
1: in the house? And I don't know, isn't it possible that there are other people coming through? Well, just a few weeks before, her and her mom went to Florida and Perry, her ex-on-again, off-again boyfriend, threw a party at her house. Nora knew about it and said it was okay.
0: So, So
1: yeah, we can speculate there were... People in and out of that house. He claims no, no one went in that house. However, the unknown DNA was found on the bed, and there was also a condom wrapper found in that room that could not be connected to Jennifer or Nora. So these high school students probably used the bedroom and had sex.
0: Absolutely, okay. and that's why
1: they can't match this unknown female DNA because it's like some young girl who doesn't have a criminal history. Probably.
0: That makes sense for me right? now. Now the DNA is a wash. I get it.
1: Yeah. So okay. So as I said, Weinrack pushed forward. During Nora's um, trial, her character was destroyed. A bevy of witnesses testified regarding how bratty she was. All of her friends turned on her. All of her friends with benefits, boyfriends turned on her. They called her a party girl. Her own family testified against her. I remember that. Yeah, Nora had- Was it uh, her aunt? Yep, exactly. Jennifer had two sisters. They both testified against Nora. And they all claim the reason why they did is because they supported Nora at the beginning. They paid for her to have an apartment before she was arrested- They gave her money, and apparently the aunt said to her, you know, just tell us where you were at those unknown times. Like, we're with you on this. And Nora couldn't give them an answer. And at that point, they were done, and they just flipped, and they were on the prosecution side. Is it possible Nora doesn't remember because she was so inebriated? I think it could be. And I I think I've heard Nora say in interviews, she interviews quite a bit, was she was just so angry that her family didn't believe her. She was kind of just like, F you. I don't need to tell you anything. Whether that helped her or not, who knows? And then there was also... I mean, that's not the tact I would take from people
0: helping me. But then again, you know, I understand yep. the, if you are innocent, you haven't mm-hmm. done something. I understand digging yep. it and feeling pretty indignant about it. Yep.
1: There was also a cousin that Nora was quite close with. She, uh, he turned on her as well. Wow. Did anyone <laughs> stand by her? She had a of. few people and okay. some of her supporters at trial are the people that are still with her today that were there picking her up at the gates when she came out. So the people that stand by her stand by her, but she doesn't have any family left mm-hmm. because she was not, she didn't know her father's family. Her father was then murdered. Her mother's family, Nora claims they never liked her because she was born from Nazmi who they did not like at all because he was abusive and it was this whole thing. Okay. So all obviously all the things we talked about, that's what was brought up at trial. Another thing that people brought up in trial, her friends, when they came to comfort Nora shortly after she found her mother dead and everyone knew what was going on, she smelled fresh. And people would say after a whole night of partying, and she claimed she was drinking, smoking pot, smoking cigarettes, and her friends said, you know, a few friends said when they hugged her, it smelled like she just got out of the shower. The showers and bathrooms were wet in the house, but... They also, we don't know Jennifer could have showered before she after she got home, before she turned in for bed, before she was murdered. It's hard to say.
0: I feel like there's any number of reasons that could have been, that would not be a strong piece of evidence for me.
1: Yeah. The biggest thing that stuck out in the final closing arguments, and this will become very important later, Wyrex stood facing Nora and said, just tell us where you were, Nora. Just tell us where you were. That is all we are asking.
0: No. D- objection? Did the defense object?
1: They did, but- It didn't matter.
0: So the judge overrules that objection and that
1: And sides with the the prosecution continue on. So you have
0: this dramatic moment where the prosecutor's
1: actually yelling at
0: Nora. Did Nora testify?
1: Nora did not testify. And actually her trial was live on court TV in February 2009. So you can see these closing arguments. And her defense attorney did a pretty interesting closing as well. She just started pulling out blankets and pillows and comforters and said, where's Nora's blood? Nora's DNA was nowhere at this crime scene. And she's just pulling out like a magician out of a hat showing the jury blood-soaked things. Nora's DNA is nowhere. A lot of drama. I like it. And of course, the prosecution's gonna say, well, isn't that curious? Why is her DNA nowhere? She lived in that house.
0: Oh, we heard that in the Melanie McGuire of course. case so too. So it's
1: like, did she clean it up? But how'd she clean it up? Her mother was blood-soaked.
0: But this, is, this is the problem though. The DNA's there, you're guilty. The DNA's it's, not you're there, you're, you're damned guilty. damned if you do, you're damned yeah. if
1: you don't. It also occurs to me that Nora claims when, that when she saw her mom dead, she went over to her mom and shook her. If her mom was this blood soaked, why would Nora have no blood on her hands at all? Maybe that's why she smelled fresh, though. Maybe she gets blood and her freaks out, and before anyone comes, washes her hands. No, because the neighbors were there soon enough that they would have been able, or at least according to the story, according to the timeline. But I do find that interesting. Her nails and her—she had zero blood on her outfit. She was wearing a white skirt when this happened when they found her. But also, she had changed her outfit from the Italian festival to the Walgreens video.
0: Oh, where where are the clothes?
1: She has. Apparently she had them and they were fine. But the police, I don't think, were ever able to say for sure what she was wearing. It was just witness testimony. Like she was wearing a black shirt, but they don't know what black shirt. Nora could just say, I changed. But she said she always kept, you know, she changed sometimes. Like it's almost like you change your party outfit because she went to so many different things. I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't afford Uh that many clothes. I know. I know. So she did not. So you asked before if Nora testified. So Nora did not testify, and I think that was the right move. If you've ever seen an interview with Nora, she comes off pretty harsh. I mean, if she is innocent, she has every right to be. She is angry, very, very angry. Okay, so So, she would have
0: come off hostile, belligerent, and she would have alienated the jury, possibly.
1: Exactly. Also, I think the attorney was worried about the effect of the medication Nora was taking. She was on a host of medications for anxiety, for depression, and her defense attorney believed that she would never be able to hold up against cross-examination. And like I said, I think it's probably just that she's not likable. She was an angsty teen. And she might not have, though. She had different stories. She couldn't account for. Exactly. She also, there was a lot of gaps in her timeline. And the fact that her cell phone had zero activity on it when she was this teenager who was always on her phone. And she was talking to all these people and then all of a sudden silence for two hours.
0: Yeah, I don't think they should have put her on. I think that was the right call not putting her on the stand. I
1: agree. So after nine hours of deliberation of a jury made up of mostly of women, I believe there were four men. They found Nora guilty and she was sentenced to 20 years and nine months without the possibility of parole.
0: What was she found guilty of? Was it? Second degree murder. Second degree murder, yep. okay. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm not surprised. that. I how think this- they could have probably got first degree. Some, you know, they...
1: Pro- if, they, it's
0: possible, but they went with the safer bet the one they knew they could get.
1: Because, I mean, there's no physical evidence. It's, enti- it's entirely circumstantial. It's pretty strong circumstantial evidence. It reminds me a lot of the McGuire case, actually. I,
0: I was just, as we're yeah. sitting here thinking, I'm going, this sounds uh, very familiar, yep. a lot of the aspects mm. of this mm-hmm. case. It's- and there's these things, and the reason why it reminds me of McGuire is because there are these things that are so clearly reasonable doubt, mm-hmm. and there are these things that are just, if, if it's not a coincidence, I just don't understand it. Yep. They, they're seemingly very indicative of some type of guilt. So, yep.
1: mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when we talk about my final verdict on this, we'll talk a lot about that. Okay. So, of course, she appealed. The appellate court affirmed the conviction. They did agree that the closing was an issue. So the closing, remember, she said, where were you? That's violating, you know, the defendant has the right to not testify. Remember, yep. the right against self-incrimination. Oh, yeah. So by Weirich saying, tell us where you are, she's implying to the jury that Nora is hiding something. Absolutely. And the appellate court said, "We agree with you that that was wrong." However, it was harmless <laughs> error. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I knew that was coming. But I, I almost agree with them. They were pretty much saying the other evidence is so damning it actually did not change the course of things.
0: I don't know yeah. that I agree with that. I think that is real. The last thing a jury is going to hear is mm-hmm. this woman yelling at her.
1: Tell us where you were, and I don't know. I think that's actually probably. Well important. Well, the um Tennessee Supreme Court would agree with you, Megan. All right. But that wasn't it because there was something else. The prosecution never turned over a statement by an important witness. Who? So Andrew Hammack was an individual that Nora claims that she, you know, spoke to that night. He claims that he spoke to Nora on the phone. Then he wrote up a statement to the police saying. Actually, I was high on ecstasy, and I didn't have my phone with me the whole night. This statement by this star, one of the star witnesses was never handed over. That's a Brady violation. Oh, sure is. So based largely in part on this newly discovered evidence, the Tennessee Supreme Court unanimously overturned Nora's conviction. Wow. So you only need three, but she got all five justices, and this was in August of 2014. So what's going to happen now? Is the prosecution going to retry the case? So that was the question. Usually they do. I mean,
0: usually they go at it, but yeah. I don't know. This is almost like disgraced. So I I don't know, Amy. Did well, they?
1: well, the Tennessee Supreme Court did say that Wyrick's failure to disclose the hammock note was a flagrant violation of Norris constitutional rights. And also they they continued on to say that Wyrick's closing, saying, tell us where you were, that's all we're asking was a violation of the Constitution's protection of the right to remain silent. So because of these two, obviously they were not giving this case back to Weirich's office. The pro- I mean, the defense would say, no way. If you want to retry this case, take it to another, give it to another district. So the prosecution that ended up getting it, they did not necessarily want to take it to trial because a lot of witnesses at this point were no longer around. Either they were not willing to testify or they could not locate them. So... What happened was, oh, I'm sorry, can I back up one minute? Because I just want to tell you how Nora found out that the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned her conviction. Sure. She actually found out just by sitting, she was in prison sitting on the toilet, and she saw, you know, like the ticker on the screen, and it (laughs) said, Tennessee Supreme Court overturns Nora Jackson's conviction. Can you imagine? (laughs) So it had been over nine years, and she found out not from her lawyer, but from watching TV, right? I mean, that's one way to spend your time on the toilet. I know, isn't that great? So on May 20th, 2015, lawyers for Nora uh, decided that it would be a good idea for her to take a plea because oh, going was... to trial. And Nora didn't want to take a plea. She maintained her innocence, and actually, she even said in prison, "It seems as such a cop out." And she didn't want to let down her friends in prison because they all say, "No, you need your day in court, and you know, don't let them win. If you take a plea, it's just a cop out." Blah blah blah. But she's
0: also spent three and a half years. Is this going to be an Alfred plea?
1: Megan, 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 it is an Alford plea. Sorry. (laughs) No, and this was not smart of her to take an Alford plea, and I'll tell you why. So first of all, for those of you who don't know, an Alford plea, it pretty much allows a defendant to acknowledge that the state has enough evidence to convict you, which is why you don't want to go to trial, but you maintain your innocence. So it's this strange thing that you're pleading, almost like you're pleading guilty because you're, you're taking on the charge because the conviction stands on your record, but you're saying hey i'm innocent.
0: You are. I mean it's it's a it's a way that you can plead guilty without admitting uh, guilt. And and for some people, you know, they yeah. just don't want to say that they did it. Some people haven't done it. Yeah. So
1: So the problem this happens in the West Memphis 3 case as well. And
0: a couple others that. Yeah, a I couple know
1: of. and a lot of not a lot but in in a, in a hand, yes, in a handful of these cases you look at the Alfred plea like especially, you know, Damien Echols and West Memphis 3 and you say This guy is innocent, but you would understand like he wanted to get the hell out of there, right? He was on death row. I know. So like I understand it. But at the same time, now she has this, you know, well, so what she did was she pled guilty to voluntary manslaughter. So they did drop it down. They gave her time served. Uh, They did not. She was told that they were going Mm. to by her lawyer. So that's why she claimed she did it because she was claimed that she was going home that day. And then it was turned out that she had another 15 months that she had to sit in prison, so she was not very happy. So she was not released until 2015, but she was released. Now, do you wanna take a guess on why this Alfred plea comes back to bite her in the ass? Has to do with money.
0: Yeah, well, you can't get compensated if you're... So there's a compensation scheme, I know, for okay, people who are but wrongfully... But ex-
1: she didn't get exonerated Well, so that's what yet, I'm saying. Yeah. You
0: you can't be compensated mm-hmm. for a wrongful conviction if yep. you accept a plea because in the eyes of the state, you are then guilty.
1: You are correct. So she did not get exonerated just yet. She is working with the Innocence Project, which we'll, which we'll talk about in a minute. But you are correct. If she does get exonerated, there'll be no compensation for her from state statute or, you know, she can't sue anyone also, she wanted her parents' inheritance. Oh. And her okay. and Jennifer's family fought her tooth and nail over this. Um, of course, the law says that murderers cannot benefit from, um, their crimes. from their crimes. But in addition to that, the family was fighting her on it. They uh-huh. ended up settling. I think the family just didn't want to deal with her anymore because she was. You know, she was fighting them on it. And I think what ended up happening, it's an undisclosed amount, but the family ended okay. up splitting it. So Nora did get some money. Okay. So Nora, when she Probably was. Probably needed it for
0: legal fees. She yep. has nothing coming out. She's... Well,
1: yeah, you're right. She, she did have a few supporters, but she really has no family. So in 2016, she was released. She lived in Memphis for a little while. Then she moved to Nashville with her girlfriend and had uh, a girlfriend that she had met in prison. And then more recently, she currently lives in Brooklyn. She's attending college. She has worked with Amanda Knox on um, some stuff regarding the way the media uh, just, you know, assassinates these females characters, which because obviously Amanda Knox had quite an issue with that as well. Oh, yeah. She's also working on a program mentoring individuals who are incarcerated. She does a lot of work now. Um, She works with Jason Flom doing some, I guess, advocacy work. So Jason Flom's had her on the show as well.
0: And for people who don't know, he deals primarily with wrongful convictions.
1: Yep. He's on the board uh, at the Innocence Project. He was one of the first board members. He does a lot of advocacy work.
0: So what you're saying really is that Nora Jackson is being treated as a case of wrongful conviction. Well,
1: that's what I find so interesting because a lot of, you know, like Emily Bazelon's book Charged is just, she's a New York Times writer. She's an amazing author, amazing, brilliant. And she talks about Nora in her book. She backs Nora. Like I said, Jason Flom, highly respected. That Innocence Project took on her case. They're working to see if they could use updated DNA methods to identify the source of the DNA that was found at the scene because they want to fully exonerate Nora. And as it says in Charge the Book, it says, you know, Nora's on board with this. And of course they could find, just like anything, they could find something that works against Nora, but Nora's, you know, game. She wants this testing to go through. So it will be really interesting to see if... Nora can be fully exonerated.
0: This also reminds me of Melanie's case again, the untested DNA that she
1: like begs to be tested. But I don't think that, I think the hair is going to end up being Jennifer's hair. I think what they really want to find out is who those unknown DNA profiles were. But like I said, I think they're probably just Nora's friends. Could be. Who happen to be there. Okay. Also, Nora, you know, she's very public now. She says she was tortured by the plea deal. Um, I want to quickly talk about alternate theories. Okay. If, If Nora didn't do it, the hell did right i mean it's possible jennifer's the man she was seeing that well, night even so the man she was seeing that night was quickly they were quickly able to eliminate him but there was another man who was an on again off again boyfriend she was dating a pastor who he lived about an hour and a half away he did call jennifer that night at midnight and then hung up and claims he hung up because he realized it was a little too late to talk to her it's fair enough so so Why is this guy, Mark Irvin, why is he even of interest? Well, his alibi is that he was at home sleeping. So nobody can confirm nor deny that. At midnight, that seems reasonable, though. Right? There are people that say he was angry and controlling. He also showed a very strong interest in the case. And we know that sometimes people that commit a crime insert themselves into the case because they want to see what the police know and what they don't know. But he was
0: dating her and she was murdered. I would be interested. Well, that to... alone,
1: right? But he's, as from whatever I found, they quickly, I think it was just a case of tunnel vision. Okay. Nora seemed like the more obvious suspect. So they went with that. I do want to talk about how personal this crime was. So we do know that if someone is stabbed over 50 times, that is emotional. That is anger. Also, Jennifer was found with a basket over her face. Now, why would someone cover a victim's face? Because they, they don't, don't want to look at them. They don't want to look them in the eye. They feel guilty. That's something if you're going to kill your mom, you probably feel a little guilty about it. You don't want to see, you know. So the fact that her face was covered, the fact that she was stabbed over 50 times... Really lends itself to a really personal. And there's
0: no uh, robbery or sexual assault.
1: Oh, thank you. There's no evidence. They did a rape kit. No evidence of sexual assault. Remember, I said they found that condom wrapper. They were not able to link it to Jennifer at all. At first, it seemed like, oh, this is interesting. Nothing, nothing was missing from the house. At first, they went in and they said, oh, this house is ransacked. But it turns out Jennifer was a bit of a shop, had a shopping problem. She was a hoarder, so there was shit everywhere. Okay, but her friends and family say, like, nope, that's just Jennifer. So nothing missing. No sexual assault. It's a rage kill. Emotional killing. Emotional rage killing. The only other theory that has been thrown out there is perhaps whoever killed Nozmi maybe killed Jennifer. But Jennifer and Nasmi had no they were, it's just it's just an unfortunate coincidence that two people would be murdered that had the same daughter. But other than that, I don't even think that's a legitimate. There's theory. no connection. But something else that might not look good for Nora is that when Nazmi passed away, he had over 1.5 million in his estate. And Nora's mother was the one who was charged with handling the estate. And there were witnesses who testified that they heard Nora and Jennifer fighting over the money. And Nora would say, just give me the fucking money. And Jennifer did not want to give Nora the money because she was a young teenager who wasn't responsible. So that could have been a motive if you think Nora did this. I also just want to point out that, you know, how rare matricide is, the killing of a mother. Right. Remember, we talked about this in the Juliet and Pauline case a couple of weeks ago.
0: Right. It's your thing now.
1: And we do right? Apparently. So less than, some reports say less than 2%. Some put it at closer to 1%. Very rare. All murders are matricide, and two-thirds are actually committed by an adult son. So matricide by a woman killing her mother at that age, extremely rare. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, though. Of course not. So where do I stand on this? I was just about to ask. I couldn't wait. I am so torn. I haven't felt this way in a while. I know um, Rebecca, when she interviewed us for Dialogue, she had asked us, which case do you want? If you could pick one case to be solved, what would it be? This might be my new one.
0: Yeah. All right. So I was going to wait to offer my own opinion, but okay. So you feel like at the I, end, you just can't establish. So I want
1: to believe her because I've seen so many interviews with her and she is so emotional and you feel for her watching this and she it seems so genuine, so genuine. She seems like such a genuine person. And like I said, so many respectable, brilliant people back her that that alone makes me want to back her because I put... Jason Flom and Emily Bazelon on such a pedestal that if they think she is, how could she not be?
0: But, but you have I, questions.
1: I have questions, kind of like with Melanie's case. If I was on that jury, I could not have convicted her because there's reasonable doubt. Same way, I don't know that Melanie's, I can't say I think Melanie's innocent, but I can say on that jury, I would not have gone guilty. Same thing in this case. Maybe she was involved in some way. I, I'm not sure. I hate to leave it like that, but well, I feel like that's
0: your opinion at the end of everything you've just presented me, and of course, I'll yeah, go down the rabbit. Yeah, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole after this, and I'm going to look at mm-hmm. everything you've just suggested, and of course, I hope our listeners will do the same thing. There's and-
1: a lot available out there right. online, to so
0: check let's out. all go down the rabbit yeah. hole together. But from what you presented, I would not feel comfortable either way making rendering a decision. I see. You know, I see that there are definitely some holes in the prosecution's story and I prob I mean, you know, I'd probably acquit because, you know, I think there probably would be reasonable doubt. But I also see some evidence that's pretty damning. So I I don't know that I would feel comfortable calling her a wrongful conviction, but I certainly wouldn't feel comfortable calling her a murderer at this point either. Mm -hmm. And this is the reality. Sometimes we're left with Mm -hmm. more questions than
1: answers exactly but i am very happy that the innocent project is working on this case right. and also remember her Nasmi case is still open and it's still pretty active i read an article from like a year and a half ago from you know the memphis police department is still really actively working on this new angle that it was mexican drug cartel related so the fact that that's an active investigation and this like maybe there is some link who knows
0: no oh, look uh, if if nora is a wrongful conviction, I really, really hope, sincerely hope that she is exonerated and that she is the one who has the last word on this issue.
1: I agree because that's her mother and her father was killed and she dealt with a lot.
0: Obviously. All right. Well, another good job, Amy. Thank you so much for today's case. Thank
1: you, Megan. Thank you all for listening.
0: Okay, great. We'll see you all next time. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash crime.
1: The sources I used for this episode, uh, Charged, the book by Emily Bazelon, also her article in New York Times Magazine, uh, also several articles from the Daily Memphian, ABC 2020, CBS 48 Hours. Okay, thanks everyone for listening. Thank you.